0: Welcome. It's good seeing all of you. If you're new here with us, uh, we're excited that you've decided to worship with us. Uh, There's a card in the seat in front of you, a Connect card. Um, If you can please fill that out and just drop it off in the drop boxes on your way out that's at the exit doors. Uh, We would love to either send you an email or give you a quick call to pray with you and and see how we can minister to you. If you have your Bibles, uh, let's turn to Acts chapter 20 as we are continuing our series through the book of Acts. Acts and so last week uh, Luke showed us a great awakening that was taking place in Ephesus and so as the Apostle Paul was proclaiming the gospel God was displaying his power his power by converting people healing people setting people free from the bondages of sin and the name of Jesus was being exalted and the word of God was being prevailed and declared as people were obeying it and as a result of their conversion not only that they renounced sin but they also destroyed it not only did they confess it they renounced it they brought it up front and they destroyed it as they nailed their sins to the cross as they confronted the idolatry worship and all of this was as a result of the power of the holy spirit through the declared word of the lord and social norms were impacted and as the social norms were being impacted, it caused an uproar and chaos ensued. And yet the Lord protected Paul and his companions through the city clerk who spoke to the mob and put the chaos to rest and the uproar ceased. Now, now you would normally think like as a result, you, you read about this incredible awakening that is taking place in Ephesus, that this awakening would kind of continue and this momentum that have started would continue. And yet it kind of, uh, it doesn't continue. Well, what Paul does is he has plans. Uh, he has plans to, to go back to the church in Jerusalem. And so as we come to Acts chapter 20, we kind of discover these plans and see what he's going to do. So, so as we come to Acts chapter 20, uh, there's a famous story of a young man named Eutychus who falls asleep during the sermon of Paul. And so after his death uh, that, that falls from a three-story building, God restores his life and Paul continues to preach until daybreak. Now, normally we, we, we look at Acts chapter 20 and we think, you know what, this is the story. And so the application is the danger what happens is if you fall asleep during the message, you could fall and die. That's not the point. But really, what I think is the point in our passage is we're gonna notice the same word that's going to occur three times in our passage. The word encouragement and comfort. And so when you study the word of God, when you read the text and a word appears more than once, what does that mean? It means that word is important. That word that that, that, that means something is happening around this very word. And we're going to see this word of encouragement that is occurring in verse 1, verse 2, and verse 12. And so the concept of encouragement is not just in this passage, but it's throughout the book of Acts. Even the author of Hebrews tells us the privilege and the responsibility that we have to encourage one another, the brothers and sisters in Christ. This is what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12 to 13. He says, watch out, brothers and sisters." So that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it's still called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deception. And so what we're going to see, and we're even seeing the lengths that Paul is going to, 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 to travel back to some of these churches that he has planted to encourage these believers. Which means to us... The importance of encouragement. And we have to understand the impact of it and the significance of it and the responsibility of what it means to encourage one another with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So so let's look at Acts 20 and let's look at the importance of encouragement. Acts chapter 20, verse 1. It says, After the uproar was over, Paul sent for the disciples, and here's our word, encouraged them, and after saying farewell, departed to go to Macedonia, verse 2. And when he had passed through those areas and offered them many words of encouragement, there's our word again, he came to Greece and stayed three months. The Jews plotted against him, and when he was about to set sail for Syria, and so he decided to go back through Macedonia, he was accompanied by Sopater, son of Phryphus from Berea. Aristarchus, Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy, Tychius, Trophimus, and from the province of Asia. Verse 5, these men went on ahead and waited for us in Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread, and in five days we reached them at Troas, where we spent seven days." So after the riot in Ephesus, Paul executed his plan of wanting to go back to Jerusalem. Now, how do we know it was his plans to go back to Jerusalem? Let's look at Acts chapter 19, verse 21. Acts 19, verse 21 says this. After these events, Paul resolved by the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. So Paul's plan was, I want to go through Macedonia, I want to go through Greece, I want to go back to Jerusalem. And the purpose of why he wanted to go back to Jerusalem, because as he was planting these churches in Macedonia and Greece and Asia Minor and Galatia, he was raising support from these Gentile churches to support the church in Jerusalem, to support the brothers and sisters in Christ in Jerusalem. And so this offering was very important for Paul. And the reason why it was important for Paul, because he believed that this offering would serve as this concrete expression of love and support and solidarity among the Christian Jews and Gentiles, realizing we're family, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ. And so this offering was important, but notice this, as he was going to these churches, as he was collecting this offering, Luke does not mention about any offering that was collected, but what does Luke mention? When he goes through Macedonia, when he goes through Greece, what is he doing? He's encouraging the people with the word of God. And so for Paul, this was very important. And so the fact that Paul went through great lengths to go to all of these churches that he's already planted, that he, that he has already established, as he's trying to raise funds for the church in Jerusalem to support them, to create this unity, this love, support, this solidarity among the churches that are Jewish and Gentiles. He takes great length to encourage these believers. And while he was in Greece for three months, that we see in verse 3, In verse 2, he came to Greece and stayed there for three months. It is during this time that he wrote the wonderful book of Romans. And when he wrote the the book of Romans or the letter to to the Roman church, we we see in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 11 to 12, what's his desire? His desire, he expresses his desire to encourage them. This is what he says, For I want very much to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gifts to strengthen you, that is, to be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. So even when he's at Greece, even when he's encouraging the church in Corinth, he's writing to the church in Rome and saying, I want to come to see you for what purposes? So that we may be mutually encouraged. And so in verse 3, when, when he wanted to go back to, to Troas, his, 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 his plans kind of changed because there were Jews that were plotting to, to kill him via, via sea. So he decided to go back via land, and he finds himself with his co-workers back in Troas. But before he reaches Troas, he decides to, to celebrate the Passover meal with the church in Philippi. In Philippi. And obviously this Passover meal has a new significance for Paul because no, because he sees the fulfillment of the Passover lamb in Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate lamb that was slain and it just, it just stirred in his heart that this grace, this motivation as he went to the church in Philippi to encourage them and also to raise support. Now again, our text doesn't talk about him raising support but we find it in, in all the other epistles that he's written. So for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He talks about the generosity of the church in Macedonia, the generosity of the church in Philippi as he's raising support. And yet Luke tells us what is he doing? He's encouraging them. So so consider three ways how Paul is encouraging these believers. I think the very first way he's encouraging these believers is through his presence. What does Paul do? Paul goes through great lengths to visit these churches that he has already planted. Like, he doesn't just start a new work, but before he starts a new work, what does he do? He goes back to these already established churches because there's something to be said about presence. We even find ourselves in the beginning of this pandemic with with isolation. What, What do we realize we cannot be alone. We are made to live in community with one another. And just the fact that we're together and seeing each other, what happens? We we're somehow encouraged just by one another's presence. And so this is what Paul is doing. Paul is encouraging them just simply through his presence, through sharing a Passover meal or breaking bread, the Lord's Supper. But he doesn't just encourage them just simply through his presence. The second thing is he also encourages them through the word of the Lord. Now in verse 2 it says this, um, in Acts chapter 20 verse 2 it says, And when he had passed through those areas, he offered them many words of encouragement. Now again, Luke doesn't tell us what kinds of words he gave them. But I think it is very safe for us to assume what words he was giving them. The word of the Lord. He was proclaiming to them the gospel, showing them the impact of the gospel, reminding them of who they are now in Jesus Christ. And so not only was he encouraging them through presence and through the word of the Lord, but also through serving with others. And so these representatives brought Paul and one another great encouragement on this trip. And and one way to forge deep relationships is by going after a common goal. And so I think here's one of the first applications for us. And it's not on your notes, but just write this down. And here's one of the things I want you to understand. If we are truly in Christ, and we see one another in Christ, in other words, brothers and sisters in Christ, and we care for one another, and we love one another, we have to commit ourselves to encourage one another. Think about these great lengths that Paul would go to to visit all of these churches, just simply to encourage them. And so as Paul is waiting for his ship to sail to go to Jerusalem, he finds himself in Troas. But he doesn't just sit in a hotel and wait for his ship to come. What does he do? He's going to find himself meeting with the Christians and Luke is going to describe to us this unique, this wonderful gathering of the saints, this unforgettable, incredible worship experience. And so what I want us to look at is is as we look at the text in verse 7 to see this incredible worship experience that is taking place and draw some application because the way that Luke is going to describe it, even though some events is unique to them, he's almost describing these events events as if they were common, as if they always were taking place in all other churches. So this is how I want us to look at. Look at this worship service in verse 7. It says this, On the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread. Paul spoke to them, and since he was about to depart the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the room upstairs where we were assembled, and a young man named Eutychus was sitting on a windowsill and sank into a deep sleep as Paul kept on talking. And when he was overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was picked up dead. But Paul went down, bent over him, embraced him and said, don't be alarmed because he is alive. And after going upstairs, breaking the bread and eating, Paul talked a long time until dawn, then he left. They brought the boy home alive and were greatly comforted. Now, F.F. Bruce notes the significance of this gathering in Troas. He says, The reference to meeting for the breaking of bread on the first day of the week is the earliest text we have from which it may infer with reasonable certainty that Christians regularly came to gather for the worship on that day. So, so as we look at this gathering of the church in Troas, we get an inside look at the priorities of the church and what happened when they gathered. So in this gathering, if you're taking notes, here's the very first thing the church did. When the church gathered weekly, they gathered weekly to celebrate the Lord's resurrection. Look at verse 7 again. It says, on the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread. Now, Now think about the tone of how Luke is writing this. He's not writing this as if this was a significant moment, as if this was a unique moment. He's writing this as if it's normal. What do you do on the first day of the week? On the first day of the week, we gather to do what? To break bread. And and so so Luke's reference on the first day of the week, is almost where he's saying that is when the church met for corporate worship. And the first day of the week is known and is set apart and is known for the Lord's resurrection. Because when was the Lord raised from the dead? On the first day of the week. And so what happened to the church To, to to be reminded of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is they came and they gathered on the first day of the week to celebrate the Lord's resurrection. And every time they gathered, they were reminding one another on the first day of the week That the tomb is empty. That Jesus Christ is occupying the throne. He has defeated death and we no longer have to fear death. All of our hopes, all of our fears has been finished, has been completed because of Jesus Christ. And so this is where the church, why the church start to gather on the first day of the week Because it was the Lord's day. It was the day the Lord rose from the dead. It was the day that the tomb was empty. And because the church's gathering was central around the resurrection, a.k.a. the gospel of Jesus Christ, what what was the foundation of Christianity, the resurrection, the foundation of the gathering, and when we gather, was set on that day. Now, in Troas, it was almost as if they were gathering in the evenings. But over time, that the church started to gather on the, in the morning. Now, again, it doesn't matter what time you gather, but what we do see in Troas, what was normal for the church in Troas and what was normal for the first century church is that they gathered on the first day of the week. And there's something special about the gathering there's more than just meets the eye when it comes to gathering. Because when we gather as the saints on the first day of the week to to celebrate the, the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it almost gives us a glimpse of something greater to come. It gives us a glimpse of the great gathering in the book of Revelation. It encourages us, our hearts and our minds, that our greatest problem in life has been solved. We no longer have to fear death. Now, I'm going to speak into this area that that I think is neglecting not just in our church but also in our culture. And I'm going to try to do it not in a legalistic way because it's very easy to become legalistic but rather in a gracious way. What we've seen in our culture is that the gathering of the saints, there's this growing spirit of indifference when it comes to the weekly gathering of the saints. Like like, like we find that the average Christian gathers twice a month. That's average. Some, I think in the next couple years, it's going to be once a month. Some, how many of you know of Christians that don't even gather? Many of you do and so so what's happened is we've kind of grown the the spirit of indifference when it comes to gathering and and the reason why it's kind of happening is because in our culture we lean towards comfort and convenience anybody struggle of worshipping the idol of comfort and convenience Like, like all of us do including myself I find myself constantly bowing down to the idol of comfort and the idol of convenience and that stirs in me this laziness towards God which means now all of a sudden I am forsaking the gathering of the saints. Why? Because I've had a long week. I'm tired. I want to sleep in and enjoy a good breakfast on Sunday mornings. I don't want to gather. I have too much going on. My grass is too tall. The beds are covered in weeds. It's a beautiful day. I just want to spend some time with family what happens is as we bow down to these idols of comfort and convenience, it stirs in us this, this, this bowing down to laziness. And we, for, we forsake the gathering of the saints. Now, we can be very legalistic with this. Even the Pharisees, when the Lord told the people of God, uh, um, observe the Sabbath, the original question is, okay, i got to observe the Sabbath. What does it mean to observe the Sabbath? And then we come up with rules. And so the same with the gathering of the saints. You know, what does it look like for the gathering of the saints? Does that mean I'm not allowed to miss any Sunday? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that the gathering of the saints should be a priority in our lives. But here's the reason why I'm saying that. It's not because I want better church attendance. It really doesn't matter to me. I am saying this because the ga- when we forsake the gathering of the saints... Not only is it dangerous, but it's also sinful. Like, think about again uh, Hebrews chapter three, uh, Hebrews chapter three, verse um, verse twelve to thirteen. This is what the author says. He says, "Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God." But encourage each other daily while it's still called today so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deception. So, so, so what, what, what is the author of Hebrews saying? Sin is crouching at your door. It is right there to get you. It is so easy for you to be deceived by sin and to develop an unbelieving heart. And this is why you need to gather. And this is why you need to encourage one another so that you do not forsake the faith. How many of you know people that have forsaken the gathering of the saints and they've bought into the deception of sin in this unbelieving heart? The reason I am sharing with you the importance of the gathering is watch out for the spirit of indifference when it comes to gathering. It's because the sin is crouching at your door. It wants to deceive you. And it normally deceives you with truth. Here's the truth how sin deceives you. Well, I know what Pastor Neil is saying is good, but going to church does not save you. Jesus saves you. Is that true? Oh, absolutely. Is it the whole truth? No. Going to church does not save you, but being part of the people of God and the gathering of saints is evidence that you are what? That you belong to Christ, that you're saved, that you are in Christ. So I'm saying this to, to warn you and to say, hey, it is, 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 it is sinful. And this is how forsaking the gathering of the saints is sinful. Because when we are not gathering, when we're not encouraging one another, what are we doing? We're putting ourselves first. We're buying into this idea of comfort and convenience and laziness and busyness when it comes before others. Hebrews even 10 verse 24 to 25 encourages the gathering. He says, let us watch out for one another to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing, but encourage each other all the more as you see the day approaching. Like, like Think about this. If you are being discipled by the world four hours a day, seven days a week, and you're being discipled, let's just be gracious, two hours a day, seven hours, two two hours a day, seven days a week by the Word of God, which one is going to win? The four or the two? Over time, the four. And that to me is very gracious. So, and so when we're constantly being discipled by our culture, constantly being discipled by Hulu or Netflix or, or YouTube TV or Fox News or Newsmax or CNN or MSNBC or whatever you watch, what message is going to prevail? one you're spending more time with. And so this is what we have to understand. This is why the gathering of the saints is so important. Because what does it do? It reorients our heart. It keeps our eyes back on, on Jesus Christ because we're reminded we don't longer have to put our hope in government. We don't have to put our hope in anything that's going on in the world because that's not the solution. What is the solution? Jesus coming back is the solution. He is our hope. He is our king. We put, we have rest in him, joy in him. We look to to him and not to these other things but when these other things are constantly yelling at us 24 hours a day and we're hardly in the word we're hardly with gathering no wonder we as christians are walking around defeated struggling with anxiety struggling in our sin overcome by fear and so this is why the gathering of the saints is so important so so again I, i'm not trying to beat you up or, or condemn you but here I, i'm gonna admit something to you You know what's helped me uh, when it comes to gathering of the saints, me personally, Neil? The fact that I'm a pastor and I have to be here. I'm being dead serious. I I was thinking about it this week. If I was not obligated to be here and if people were not dependent on me to preach the word of God, there are many Sundays I would be like, I just don't feel like it. I'm just being honest, I'm I'm for real. But here's the reality. I am glad that people are dependent on me to be here. But that's true for you too. Just because you're not on stage bringing the word, people are dependent on you to show up. This is what you have to understand when it comes to the gathering of the saints. You're not just coming to be encouraged. But you're coming to encourage others. You might not be serving in a ministry with ushering or, or greeting or Ignite or, or, or nursery. You might just be simply coming here. And just by you coming here, there are people that are dependent on you. You might turn around and shake a hand. You might just give a smile or a high five or a hug. And people needed that. And so what you have to see yourself is you're not coming to be entertained and to just simply be encouraged. You're coming as you're participating, as you're being encouraged by the word of the Lord. And you're encouraging one another. And that has truly helped me in my walk with the Lord. And I believe if you start seeing the gathering of the saints like this, it will help you. Because those days when you don't feel like getting up because you had a long week and you're tired and the kids were up till very late, you now and you wanna turn off the alarm clock, put it on snooze, you say, you know what? There are people dependent on me. I need to be here. If I'm not here, who's gonna encourage them? Start looking at the gathering this, this way. And so we see the church in Troas, Luke describes, man, on the first day of the week, they just were simply gathering. They were gathering on the first day of the week because that is the Lord's day. That is the day the Lord was was risen from the dead. But then Luke tells us this, what did they do when they gathered? Look look at verse 7 again. On the first day of the week, we assembled to break bread. So in other words, the church gathered weekly, not just to celebrate the Lord's resurrection, to be reminded that the tomb is empty, death has been defeated, our sin has been paid for, but they also gathered weekly to, if you're taking notes, to experience the Lord's Supper. Verse 7, they gathered weekly to break bread. Verse 11, look at this, after going upstairs, what did they do? broke bread, eating. Now that idea of breaking bread is the exact same idea of the Lord's Supper. So when the saints gathered and they sat at the table and they broke bread, they were celebrating the Lord's Supper. And the way Luke talks about it, he talks about it as if it's a common event in the gathering of the saints. I love what John Stott says. He says, the word and sacrament were combined in the ministry given to the church at Troas, and the universal church had followed suit ever since. So, so there are three aspects when it comes to the Lord's Supper. The, the first aspect that we have to understand when it comes to the Lord's Supper is the privilege. Think about who Paul was breaking bread with. He was breaking bread with the Christians in in Troas. Now, these people in Troas probably weren't Christians for very long. And how encouraging must it have been for Paul, who arrived in Troas, proclaimed the gospel, and seeing the worst of sinners coming, repenting, experiencing life in Jesus, and partaking in the elements, breaking the bread and taking the cup. Like, what a joyous and privileged experience it must have been with Paul seeing these people. He had sacrificed so much for them when it comes to the gospel and now they're finally experiencing it as together in Christ, breaking the bread and taking the cup. John Patton, who took the gospel to the people of the new Hebrides Islands. And after many trials and difficult seasons, Patton reported the unspeakable joy he experienced when he served the first communion to a group of new believers in Aniwa. This is what he wrote. He says, for years we had toiled and prayed and taught for this. And at the moment when I put the bread and wine into those dark hands, once stained with the blood of cannibalism, but now stretched out to receive and partake the emblems and seals of the Redeemer's love, I had a foretaste of the joy of the glory that well broke into my heart, and it broke my heart to pieces. I shall never taste a deeper bliss till I gaze on the glorified face of Jesus himself. Like what a powerful picture it paints. A group of people who are cannibalists And he toiled and he labored in sharing the gospel with them and them being radically converted. And now he hands the bread that represents the body of Christ broken for them and the cup that represents the blood that was shed for them. And they're all partaking in it as saints together, brothers and sisters in Christ. Like what a privilege it is for us that we get to sit at the table as we memorialize the Lord's forgiveness, as we break bread together. Each of us were dead in our sins, unworthy to sit at the table, but now made alive in Jesus Christ. May we never get over the wonders of the gospel. The wonders of taking the bread, taking the cup, remembering the Lord's body that was broken for us and his blood that was shed for us. And so as they celebrate, experience the Lord's Supper, we see the privilege, but then we also see the pattern. I was very hesitant in in preaching this part because it confronts me as your pastor and what I feel like I might be doing wrong. Now, Scripture does not tell us how often we should take the cup and the bread. However, look at verse 7. Again, like look at just how he's describing it. On the first day of the week, we assemble to do what? To break bread. What is he implying? On the first day of the week, like we always do, we come to do what? To break bread. Bread. Paul in um, 1 Corinthians 10 verse 26, he says, he talks about communion and then his last phrase is, as you do this, what are you declaring? The Lord's death until he comes. How often should we declare the Lord's death? As often as possible because what do we need to be reminded of? The Lord's death and then I do not like Charles Spurgeon I'm just kidding here's this quote he gave me and I did not want to put it in my message but this is what he says my witness is and I think I speak the mind of many of God's people now present that come as some of us do weekly to the Lord's table we do not find the breaking of bread to loss its significance It's always fresh to us. Here's the part I don't like. Shame on the Christian church that should put it off to once a month. (laughs) Why are you guys laughing? Shame on you. I'm not the church. We're the church. And mar the first day of week by depriving it of its glory in the meeting together for fellowship and breaking of the bread and showing forth the death of Christ till he comes. They who once know the sweetness of each Lord's day celebrate his supper will not be content. I'm sure of this. Do not put it off for lesser. I- I- I'm wrestling with this. Okay? And so here's the second reason I'm wrestling with this. Because in the Lord's Supper, not only do we see the privilege, like we as unworthy sinners now made alive in Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, heirs to the kingdom of God, get to sit at the table as we celebrate the Lord's death, the Lord's burial, the Lord's resurrection. But then also look at the power of the Lord's Supper. Like the Lord's Supper is powerful in its reception. Now, I don't think we should go as far as to view these elements transfiguring into the actual body and blood of Jesus, but I also think, don't think we should go to the opposite side of just minimizing these things. Like for many of us, when we think about the Lord's Supper, we're always being taught of what it does not mean but we're never being taught of what it actually means. And when we're taught of what it does not mean, it means that we have a low view of the Lord's table. But we shouldn't have a low view of it because there's Power in what happens. It should be experience this profound delight and deep joy when we get to sit at the table. Because the Lord's Supper is powerful in its proclamation. Like, like Think about this. Right now, I'm declaring the word of God with you and, and imparting some gospel truths. I'm preaching to your ear. You're hearing it. You're meditating upon it. You are uh, kind of digesting it. But how is the Lord's Supper preaching the gospel? It's preaching to the eye. So when I'm declaring the word of God to you and preaching the gospel, I'm preaching to your ear. And then you look at the Lord's table, it's preaching to your eye. Because what do you see at the Lord's table? You see the bread that represents the body that was broken for you. You see the cup that represents his blood that was shed for you, the new covenant. So what does it constantly remind you of? The gospel of Jesus Christ. And what did I tell you? What do we need to constantly be reminded of every single day? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Now let's go back to the pattern. How often should we be doing it? If we're constantly preaching to the ear, shouldn't we constantly be preaching to the ear and to the eye? Isn't it a reinforcement? Anybody are visual people? How many of you say, you know what? I'm a visual learner. You know what this is? It's visual. It's powerful in its visualness. His body that was broken for me, his blood that was shed for me powerful in its reception it's powerful in its proclamation but it's also powerful in its unification like in paul's uh, letter to the church in corinth and i know got to, i'm running out of time he, he spoke a, a lot about this call for unity at the table because in corinth you had a people who had a lot of money and they were neglecting those that were poor when it comes to the table the fat cats were sitting at the table while the the the, the, the people who had nothing were neglected in all of it and paul said Mm-mm-mm. No, because what does the table represent? We're all united in Christ. We're all one in Christ. It doesn't care about the color of your skin or your paycheck or what you do for a living or how long you've been here. No, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ sitting in the table. We're reminded we're united in Jesus Christ. In Christ, we are family. And it even proclaims this togetherness. This togetherness of what a powerful sign to come. It's a, this, this, this table is a shadow of the great wedding banquet, the feast that is waiting for us. It is a sign that we are part of something much bigger because right now all over the world, what are brothers and sisters doing? Sitting at the table, feasting on the body of Christ, being reminded of his body that was broken for us. Let me move on. So we see the church in Trohas when we, they gathered weekly to celebrate the Lord's resurrection. They gathered weekly to experience the Lord's Supper. And the third thing, if you're taking notes, gathering weekly to hear the Lord's word. What did Paul do? He preached with many words he encouraged them. Look, look at verse 7 again. He spoke to them. And since he was, dep- uh, he was about to depart the next day, he kept on talking until midnight. Uh, skip over to verse 9. And a young man uh, named Eutychus was sitting on a windowsill and sank into a deep sleep as Paul kept on talking. Skipped over uh, to, to, to verse 11. After going upstairs, breaking bread, and eating, Paul talked a long time until dawn. Then he left. What was he doing? Declaring the word of the Lord, preaching the gospel. Now, obviously, there are similarities on the first day of the week. We, as, as Christians, are gathering to, to celebrate the, the Lord's resurrection as we, as we uh, are, are looking at the table, as we're hearing the word of God. And obviously, Paul preached till midnight. That doesn't mean we have to, to preach till midnight. But what we have to see is the centrality of the Word of God. 1 Timothy 4.13 says, Until I come, give your attention to public reading, exhortation, and teaching. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones says. He says, Is it not clear, as you take a bird's-eye view of church history, that the decadent periods and eras in the history of the church have always been those periods when preaching has declined? What is that always heralds the dawn of a reformation or of a revival? The renewed preaching of the Word of God. Last week, what was central to the Great Awakening? The Word of the Lord. And here, you're like, Neil, you haven't addressed Eutychus being raised. I'm not going to address it. Because after he died and Paul got on top of him and raised him, what what, what would Paul go back to do? He's like, Eutychus, just stop distracting us. It's not about you, bud. He went back to preaching, breaking the Lord's bread. And look at verse 12 here, okay? So, so uh, were they relieved or were they comforted? Which is the z- exact Greek. The Greek is the exact same word for encouragement. They were, com- they were encouraged. Why were they encouraged? Not that Eutychus did not die, but because of the word of the Lord. Uh, l- 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 let's wrap it up here as we get to sit at the table. I think this text does a great job of illustrating the ministry of this Christ-exalting, spirit-empowered encouragement. We need to commit ourselves to encourage one another as we gather, as we gather to celebrate the Lord's resurrection, as we gather to experience the Lord's Supper, as we gather to hear the Word of God. Listen to me. Do not forsake the gathering not only is it dangerous, but it's also sinful. I want to briefly talk into this, and then we're going to sit at the table. Here's what I've noticed in my own heart. What do we normally live for during the week? We live for the weekends. Anybody live for the weekends? And so week after week after week, we, we can't wait for the weekends. It is Friday. My week is almost over. And, and, and what, what, what is this idea of the weekends we have? Finally, I'm going to kick back and relax. Finally, this, this paradise, I'm somehow going to be discovered. I'm going to find this rest. I'm going to create this family memories. It's this wonderful utopia. And what happens every Monday Ah, I'm tired. Why not? Because paradise was never found. Rest was never discovered. Here's why I'm bringing this up. If you are constantly living for the weekends like I do, and like you do, and like our culture does, You will always be unsatisfied. And here's the reason why we live for the weekends. Because we know there's something missing. We know paradise is lost and we need to find it. How does the gospel speak into that? The gospel says, don't live for the weekends, live for me. And when you live for me, what will you find? Rest. Paradise. I'm coming back to do what? To restore, to make things new paradise regain this wonderful utopia of living in the presence of god finding rest and meaning in him and guess what what is this gathering right now it is a shadow of what is to come you know what the new heaven and the new earth is looking like the people of god gathering in the presence of god celebrating the power of god worshiping god For his glory so when we chase these weekends for rest for paradise we're chasing the wrong things but when we gather and we're chasing Christ that's where we will find rest that's where we will find paradise start thinking about the gathering in different ways now let's get to be at the table think about this table This table reminds us that rest can be found. It reminds us paradise is coming. Because when we break the bread, we're thinking about his body that was broken for us. We think about his blood that was shed for us. And because of Jesus, we get to be part of this new covenant. We get to be part of the kingdom of God. It is a shadow of what is to come at this great wedding feast as we declare his death as we think that the tomb is empty that our greatest problem has been taken care of is there anything we have to fear no why because of jesus christ our hope is in him death has been defeated and as you've heard it with your ears now you get to see it with your eyes And so as we're about to hand out these elements, like use this time to to think about the Lord's body that was broken for you, his blood that was shed for you, the new covenant that you have in him. Think about your life right now and the paradise that you're chasing after that you're never going to accomplish, and yet this paradise you can find in Jesus Christ. Our heart says, go after these things because they're bent towards evil. But as our eyes are looking to the table, It helps us reorient our hearts and say, no, paradise and rest can only be found in him. As I meditate on him, as I look to him, as I'm reminded of this powerful, wonderful privilege, I get to sit at this table. But then there's also warnings. What does Paul tell us to the church in Corinthians? Like when we get to sit at the table, first of all, we've got to make sure we're right with God. We've got to make sure we're right with one another. We need to repent of our sins, confess it. And we need to do it together as a family because we're brothers and sisters in Christ. With arms locked, we get to sit as one in Christ at this table. And so if there's any sin that you need to confess, confess that sin, repent of it. And here's the beauty of it as you're confessing and repenting what are you reminded of his blood covered that i don't have to pay for it he has paid for it my body doesn't have to be broken for it his body has to be broken for it thank you jesus for that forgiveness and so as our ushers are coming forward to hand out the elements we ask to wait for everybody and then we're going to meditate and we're going to celebrate Uh, Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the table. We thank you for your son and his body that was broken for us, his blood that was shed for us. Help us to never forget. Help us to look to you, be overwhelmed by you, see the privilege, see the power. Stir our hearts and our affections for you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for this wonderful privilege that we have. How you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light. How we were once not a people, but now we are your people. How we had not received mercy, and now we have received mercy. And as a result of it, Lord, we are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people that have been set apart to declare the praises of you. And as we sit at this table and as we eat the body of Christ, as we drink the body, uh, the, the blood of Christ, we're reminded of the price it came with. His body that was broken for me. He was cursed for me because I rejected you and rebelled against you. I broke the law and I was under a curse. And Lord Jesus, you came and you lived the life I could not live. You fulfilled the law on my behalf and you faced the curse that I was supposed to face as you hung on a tree. Cursed is the man who hangs on a tree and you became that curse for me. Thank you, the forgiveness that's been provided by your blood, the reconciliation and the redemption and the new life now I have in you. And even though, Lord, my heart is prone to wonder, when I come and I sit at the table, it reorients me, help me, help us to constantly reorient our hearts and our minds as we faithfully point one another to you and in our battle against sin we can put it to death because of you we praise you and we love you and we ask all of this in jesus name amen let us stand let us worship king jesus